turn to the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. We're taking uh, another break, just a one-week break from our study in Romans to uh, look at this passage in Genesis, these first verses of uh, the Bible. I want to read verse 1 of Genesis 1, and then I want to read verses 26 through 31 of this first chapter. So turn with me there and follow along as we hear this God's word. Again, this is God's word spoken to us by him, preserved and kept by him for our good, for our good as an expression of his love for us, the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every, every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray together. Father and Son and Holy Spirit, triune God, creator of the heavens and the earth, we bow before you to thank you, to thank you that there is an explanation for the beauty, the wonder, the diversity, the harmonies, the delicacies, the majesties of the whole of the creation that we see around us. We thank you that there is an explanation that resonates with our hearts, that resonates with our souls, that pushes past our brains and reaches into the depths of our being. Thank you, Lord, that this truth resonates with who we are. And we ask you for your spirit, especially as we look at your word together today and think about it and work through the implications of it. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As I said uh, a little bit ago, this Sunday is a Sunday in which churches across this country uh, want to recognize the sanctity of life. They want to recognize the dignity, the worth, the value of every human being, whether born or unborn, whether young or old, whether sane or insane, whether productive or unproductive, whether weak or strong. All across this country, it is a wonderful thing that God's people are doing. It is um, it is a tragedy to me. It is a, it is a shame that the issue of the dignity of each individual human life has become a political issue. 
a political issue or a constitutional issue or a legal issue or some combination of all three. And it's a sad thing because when an issue like this becomes simply a political or constitutional or legal issue, it ends up being disconnected from its theological foundations. And when you come through those doors there, when you walk into this place where we gather to worship the God who is really there, when we gather together to worship as God's people, coming together to acknowledge that he exists, coming together to acknowledge that he has redeemed us in infinite mercy and compassion, the cross is empty because somebody really came, really lived, really died, really was raised from death to life, really does ascend to the right hand of the Father, really does rule and reign as the King of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. We gather on this particular day at this particular time because of those things. We come together as God's people to acknowledge that he is, to acknowledge that he has redeemed us. And we, when we step through those doors and come into this particular setting, not that we leave it behind when we go out into the world, but we are especially mindful when we come into this place that everything is fundamentally, basically, essentially, foundationally theological, and there is no issue that can be disconnected from the existence of the God who is really there. Nothing, nothing can be disconnected. My job every week, in one way or another, is to remind us of that fact. Week by week, month by month, year by year, In one way or another, that is what I try to do. That is what I struggle to do. That is what I ask you that you would pray for me that I'd be able to do. That I, together with you, be reminded that all of life, all of life makes sense. Any portion of life makes sense only, only in its connection to the infinite personal God who is really there who is really there, the God who is limitless in power and goodness. And so on this particular Sunday, I want to remind us of four things. They're cornerstone kinds of things, foundational kinds of things, fundamental kinds of things. They're things upon which the whole of life, I think, can be constructed. They are things through which, a grid, if you will, through which the whole of life can be considered And it is in connection with these four things that the whole of life begins to make sense. And apart from them, friends, it just doesn't. It just doesn't. So here are the four things coming from Genesis 1 and 2. Number one, God is. God is. He is. Number two, God creates. Number three, God governs. And number four, mankind serves. God is, God creates, God governs, and mankind serves, is designed to serve. So first, God is. There are four words in your Bible as the first words of your Bible, and they are translated in almost every translation exactly the same way. In the beginning, God In the beginning, God. Now, interestingly, in the original, in the Hebrew, impress you with with a little bit of my knowledge of Hebrew, not that I have a lot of knowledge of Hebrew, but I have a little bit of knowledge of Hebrew. Just to let you know something about the Hebrew language, it works differently from the English language. And what 
what Hebrew does as you create a sentence is put the really important words first. And so in the original, interestingly, these five words are actually three words, and the second word in order is create. In the beginning, at the head, at the start, created God. In our translation, it's in the beginning, God created. In the original, the word order is different for emphasis. The emphasis is on creation. But even in that, even in emphasizing the fact of the creation, there is presupposed a creator. In the beginning, God. Somebody has to create if there's a creation, right? If there is a creation, there has to be a creator. That's what the Bible wants to press home to us. And what the Bible is saying to us is that in the beginning or at the head of everything else or at the first, there was God. There was God. From the perspective of who we are, from the perspective of human history, there was a beginning. There was a beginning. Now, modern scientific folk, the modern scientific community, for reasons I don't fully understand because I don't understand physics and I don't understand astronomy, and my head gets really puzzled with mathematics much beyond simple addition and subtraction. I never did get algebra. I never did get trigonometry. I never did get any of that stuff. I got out of high school with a D minus in senior math. I hope that's a comfort to some of you. You can grow up and be a you know, a contributing citizen of the realm making a D minus in senior math. I'm testimony to that fact. But for reasons I don't understand, because I don't understand all of these different disciplines that that enter into a consideration of these things among scientists, even the modern scientific community acknowledges some sort of a beginning. The modern scientific community acknowledges a beginning. I quoted Richard Dawkins to you last week. Let me quote from him again. The fact that life evolved, Richard Dawkins is a celebrated um, evolutionary biologist, is a Brit, um, atheist, takes God completely out of the equation. And, And this is from Richard Dawkins. I think I quoted this last week. The fact that life evolved out of nearly nothing some 10 billion years ago after the universe evolved out of literally nothing is a fact so staggering that I would be mad to attempt words to do it justice. Now, you hear what he's saying. He's saying there was a beginning. it's, it's, It's beyond his capacity. Language, words, the, the configuration of words into sentences to try to convey thoughts. Words are not adequate to describe this staggering fact. He can't account for the beginning. He doesn't have an explanation for the beginning, but he acknowledges that there was a beginning. There was a beginning. Now for you, I hope, I pray, I trust, for you here this morning, you understand that there is a way to account for that beginning. And the way that we account for that beginning is the infinite personal God who is really there. In the beginning, God. There basically are two ways to look at reality, two ways to consider reality, two ways to contemplate reality. Your existence and your existence in the midst of these things that are around you, the rest of existence. There are two ways to contemplate reality. 
either in terms of the infinite personal triune God who is really there, either he is your starting point as he is for the Bible when he speaks in the beginning God, either he is the point of departure for your interpretation of reality, your consideration of reality, or he isn't or he is not. Either he is or he isn't. And what I'm always wanting to challenge us to do is is identify what our starting point is. What is your starting point? And reason through to the logical conclusions given that starting point. It's always fascinated me that there's a very real sense in which the Bible does not argue for the existence of God. The Bible simply asserts in the beginning God. Now look, if the infinite personal God is really there, he's given us plenty of evidence of the fact that he is. And the whole of the creation, as we'll see in a minute, is an invitation to us to take a look around and consider it. Consider the creation in all of its beauty and perplexities and mysteries and wonders and intricacies and majesties and delicacies. The creation is there calling to us, summoning us, pleading with us. Look at me and give me an adequate account for my existence. And either, either the infinite personal God is really there or he isn't. Now, the God who is there, the God who discloses himself beginning at verse 1 of chapter 1 of Genesis as the starting point for a consideration of all reality, the Bible makes very clear that God is sufficiently powerful to account for what is there. Sufficiently powerful to account for what is there. He is infinite. He is eternal. He is unchanging. As the confession says, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He is infinite means he is not finite. He is not limited like you are. He is not um, limited in terms of space or time. Finitude has to do with space. Eternity has to do with time. He is not finite and limited with respect to space. He fills all space and somehow extends even beyond all space. I don't get how some of this stuff works, but he is not limited by space and he is not bound by time. That's That's what the confession means when it says that he is eternal. He is infinite and he is eternal and thanks be to God, he is unchanging. That's hugely significant when he starts to speak because when he starts to speak, he begins to make promises. And everything that he says is true and every promise he makes you can take to the bank. He's infinite, eternal, and unchanging. Just think in terms of his power. I just looked this up again this morning. The nearest galaxy to to our galaxy is Andromeda, right? You've heard of it? There, There are at least 30 galaxies in this in this cluster of galaxies of which ours is a part and of which Andromeda is the next closest. You know how far Andromeda is? That bus ticket isn't going to get you there. I looked this up. Wikipedia, okay, Googled it, consulted Mr. Google. 
2.5 million light years is the nearest galaxy to our galaxy. That's traveling at 186,000 miles per second for two and a half million years. A bus ticket isn't going to get you there. What is sufficiently powerful to account for something as massive as this universe in which we find ourselves? It makes all the difference in the world how you answer that question. The French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, I've mentioned his name before, was an atheist, encountered him 35 years ago, 36 years ago as a young Christian. Sartre clearly understood this. He is the one who is quoted by Francis Schaeffer in the book, The God Who Is There. The French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre said this, no finite point has meaning without an infinite reference point. No finite point has meaning without an infinite reference point. No finite thing has any ultimate, absolute, final meaning unless there is something outside it, something beyond it, something infinite to give it its meaning. All meaning becomes real meaning only, only when there is something outside that finite thing to give that finite thing its meaning. If the infinite personal God, the infinite personal triune God is not there, infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, if he is not there, nothing has any meaning ultimate. It's purely arbitrary. It's all relative. Sartre was an atheist. The infinite reference point was not there. The one thing that can give meaning to all things does not exist. And so Sartre also said that God does not exist. I cannot deny that my whole being cries out for God. I cannot forget. And he also said, every existing thing is born without reason, prolongs itself out of weakness, and dies by chance. If you take the infinite personal God who is really there out of the equation, that is what you are left with. All living things are born without reason, meaning, purpose. They are prolonged out of weakness and they die by chance. What am I reminding myself of here? What am I reminding you of here? What am I trying to encourage you with? That the existence of the infinite personal God, not merely an impersonal reference point, but the infinite personal triune God who is there, who is both good and powerful, gives meaning to your existence gives meaning to your existence. And folks, either the baby in the womb, either the baby in the womb is a human being, the fruit of the union of two human beings with a meaning and significance assigned it by the infinite personal God who is really there 
for that human being is the result of caprice and impersonal forces, as we said last week. And the same is true of the old man hidden away in a room hooked up to a bunch of tubes. And the same is true of the Downs baby, young, old, weak, infirm, strong, vigorous, smart, talented. Who assigns to people their value? The infinite personal God who is there. And if he isn't there, you're a commodity. You're a commodity. The infinite personal God says of every life, each of of your lives, the infinite personal God who is really there says, this is mine, this belongs to me, this is to be cherished, this is to be defended, this is to be protected. And if he isn't there, if he isn't there, you are cosmic rubbish to be disposed of when your usefulness is over. God is. Second, God creates. There are several words in the Hebrew that can be translated make or made. Three of them appear in the first two chapters of Genesis. The first of them in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 2, 7, and 8, God says the Lord formed the man, and still another word is used in Genesis 2, 22, and the Lord made from the rib of the man, the woman. Actually, it can be translated, as I think you see in the margin perhaps of an ESV, actually it can be translated built, which sounds awfully much like a building or a car (laughs) with respect to the woman. But actually, the word further intensifies the personal quality and nature of God's creative activity. What's interesting is that the word that appears in Genesis 1.1, the word creates, is used only in connection with God. These other words are used in connection with human beings and how human beings can form and fashion and shape things, but only God creates in the truest and most strict sense of the word. And across Genesis 1, through those six days of the creation, on occasion after occasion, this word create is used. And that's tremendously significant. There are these acts of creation, acts which God, by his spoken word, accomplishes. He brings things into existence. And as he brings those things into existence, those things that he brings into existence have a significance and a unique meaning. There is a differentiation of meaning because of the creative activity of God. And so as you make your way through the six days of creation, you move more and more and more in the direction, if you will, of higher levels of being. But you see, as you move, it's not because of a developmental view of the universe. It's because of this hands-on, if you will, creative activity of God so that by the time you come to the sixth day, this word created appears multiple times with respect specifically to the man and the woman. God created 
What's interesting in chapter 2 of Genesis, and I'll just submit this to you that you read this this week sometime. When you get to chapter 2, the man before the woman is created in the second chapter, the narrative of the second chapter, the man runs around all over the creation giving names to things. Now, how does he name things? This is is really significant. I, I hope you'll stick with me and think about this. Naming was not an arbitrary thing for Adam when he was running around the garden looking for a companion. That's basically what he was doing. And he couldn't find one. But as he was looking, he was giving names to the things that God had created. And it was not an arbitrary thing that he was engaged in. When he names the woman Eve... He names her Eve because she is the mother of all living. In other words, the name corresponds to the reality that she is. She is the mother of all living. She is the source of all subsequent generations. Her name isn't Judy, it's Eve. Her name isn't Patricia simply because Adam liked the name Patricia or wanted to marry someone who was Patrician. Her name was Eve because that is what she was. And so as Adam makes his way through the garden, as he gives names to things, what he is doing is discovering the reality that is there. He's not the manufacturer of reality. He's not the creator of the realities around him. He is the discoverer of the realities around him. Heard this piece years ago. Years ago. It was an interview with an author. His name was Christoph Wolf. He wrote a biography of Johann Sebastian Bach. You know how Bach used to sign Soli Deo Gloria at the bottom of every page of music that he wrote? Soli to the glory of God. Bach also understood music in this way. Bach didn't think of himself as a creator. Bach thought of himself as a discoverer. The music is out there. It's out there to be found. It's out there to be discovered. It's woven into the fabric of existence and reality. And you go out into the world to find it, to discover it. That's why you as a Christian need to know, you need to understand that science ultimately poses no threat to the Christian position because science is simply the work of taxonomy. It's simply naming things. It's giving names to the reality that is there. And we do it by exploration and exploring and all of these wonderful things that science is engaged in. Science gets into trouble when the invisible X factor is removed from the equation, when the infinite personal God who has created the reality around us is removed as the one who has created the diversity and the wonder of the world in which we live. Bruce Waltke writes this in his commentary on Genesis about this first first verse. It's here. Hang on. This word create distinguishes itself by being used exclusively of God. 
His creation reveals his immeasurable power and might. And I love these phrases. His bewildering imagination and wisdom, his immortality and transcendence, ultimately leaving the finite mortal in mystery. His bewildering imagination and wisdom, his immortality and his transcendence, ultimately leaving the finite mortal in mystery. John Piper at a recent conference made this great statement, self-forgetfulness in the presence of greatness is the capstone of joy. We are made to stand on a mountain stunned with a magnificence outside of ourselves. One of the residents at the refuge put it like this a couple of weeks ago. When we stand in the presence of something so amazing that we are emptied of ourselves, it is then that we become most satisfied. You know what our problem is? We're way too amazed with ourselves. We're way too amazed with ourselves. If I could identify one thing that's wrong with our culture and it's infected the church, it's worked its way into my life and your life, we are so amazed and even imprisoned by our own creations, by our own screens and programs and technologies. We're so amazed that what, the, what these things can do. We have lost, actually, a sense of wonder, a sense of wonder in the face of the phenomenal majesty of God and the bewildering, bewildering imagination of God. But here is God, the infinite personal God who is really there, who assigns to things their meaning, who creates particularly and significantly to say nothing of all of his works in redemption. Here is this creator, redeemer, God who invites us to take a look around and simply be amazed. So God is, God creates, and then third, and I got to do this fast, I know. Third, we are governed. God is, God creates, and I hope you understand that we are governed. Let me put it to you in terms that we can understand. We live in a democracy, and democracy is a wonderful form of human government. But democracy will only work, it will only work when those who seek to govern themselves understand that they are governed. Democracy will only work when those who seek to govern themselves understand that they are governed. We say government is of the people, by the people, and for the people. That may be true out there, but it isn't true in here. It is not true in the kingdom of heaven. It is not true among the citizens of God. Jesus is not elected. God is not elected. Psalm 97 verses 1 and 2 say, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Why should the earth rejoice? Because thanks be to God, government is not of the people and by the people. Government is of God and by God. And in the wonderful providence of God, it does end up being the case that it is for the people. The government of God, which originates in him and is executed by him, is actually 
is actually the only government that works. And it is the only government that serves the highest interests of those who are governed. So when you come through those doors, when we come here together, we come here together to testify to the world around us that we are governed by someone else. We come here to testify before the world that we're not smart enough, we're not wise enough, we're not good enough to govern ourselves. We need an infinitely merciful, powerful, gracious, and compassionate God to govern us. And he does that through his word. Stick this word in your craw, if you would. Man does not live by bread alone by human institutions, by physical bread. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so God is, and God creates, and God assigns dignity. And the reason the psalmist in Psalm 97 can say that the earth will rejoice, it is because in verse 2 of that psalm, There is an affirmation that righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. The throne of God rests upon a foundation of righteousness and justice, not political polls, not power, but righteousness and justice. His righteousness is him doing what is right always and his justice because he possesses the requisite power. His justice is the enforcement of his righteousness. You can be sure that God not only desires to do good, but he possesses power necessary to do good, to do justice. And so, God is, God creates, and God reigns, governs, rules in righteousness and justice, and we, mankind, by the original design, and now those who, by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, have been redeemed from bondage and sin and death, made new creations by his grace, we now are here to serve. We're called to serve the God who creates, the God who governs, gathers us to himself. Even as he sustains all that he has made, he gathers us to himself so that we may serve. When God created the man and the woman, he commissioned them. That's verses 26 to 31 of chapter 1. When God created the man and the woman, he created them in his likeness after his image. That means he created them with capacities and capabilities for righteousness and justice. And he commissioned them to press his glory, his righteousness, his goodness out into the whole of the creation. He created these people, created the man and the woman, and has recreated you and me now by his grace, and commissions us to press his goodness, his glory, his righteousness, and to the extent possible, his justice out into the world so that the day will come someday when the earth will be full of the glory of the Lord. That is what he calls us to. People will say, 
Keep your religion private. Keep your religion private. Keep it out of the public sector. Keep it out of the public sphere. Keep your theological convictions to yourself. I say, I can't. This is my father's world. This is my father's world. That's, that is my core conviction. That is what is at the core of my existence. This is my father's world. And my father, who has created me with a capacity for righteousness and justice, a capacity which was horribly moored and marred and distorted by the fall, but which is being recreated after the image of Jesus Christ, who is himself righteousness and justice. God who has created me and redeemed me. This is his world. And I can't keep my convictions private. I have to take it out into the public sphere, into the public sector, because this is my father's world. And with Abraham Kuyper, I say, I want to encourage you to say, There is not one square inch in the whole of the creation about which Jesus Christ does not say, this is mine, this belongs to me. This is mine, this belongs to me. And so God who has created me and who is in infinite compassion redeemed me to himself out of my utter weakness and destitution who is remaking, reforming, reshaping my heart so that my heart is turned in the direction of the weak and the helpless. God who has redeemed me and is doing that work in my life sends me out into the world to be his voice, to be his hands, to be his feet, exhibiting righteousness and justice in the midst of the world. I have to do it. I can't not do it. There is much more that I must do but I must do this as well. And so, I will support CareNet. I will support my my friend Mark Parsons. I will support my friend Jan Johnson. I will encourage this church to support CareNet. I will pray that by God's grace, our support for these people and what they're doing and what this organization does will increase and grow so that we can increase the dollar amount that we're giving to what they're doing. I will encourage us to continue to support this ministry. And I will encourage us to continue to pray for the president and for Congress and for the Supreme Court that they will reverse decisions that continue to pose an enormous threat to the unborn, the aged, and the infirm. And I will do it and we will do it because our God is a God of righteousness and justice, and he who is making us after his own image commissions us and compels us to go out into the world in his name to do all that we can in the defense of those who are vulnerable. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you know this is not a political issue. This is a fundamentally theological issue. And so I ask you, that you would help us, help us to see it, help us to understand it, help us to extend grace and compassion and mercy in an ongoing way to those who are caught, caught in various webs of deceit and darkness, who have been hurt, who have been wounded. Help us to help them and help us, oh God, to be those who would come alongside you in the causes of righteousness and justice. 
for the sake of your name. We pray in your name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand and we'll sing together the closing hymn. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Number 163. Let me invite you to stand.